Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's BMS podcast with Mark Sankey, Rich Fish, and myself, Clayton Ferry. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the evolution of the building management system. So this may not seem relevant, but much can be learned from the craftsmen, engineers, and techs from the early days of building controls. The need for correct application of P, PI, and PID control, reset calculations, and control loop tuning are often ignored, but essential to produce high-performance buildings and systems. So with that being said, let's start off with BMS from the beginning. And I would say that really starts with the invention of the thermostat. So Mark, when did that happen? Well, there are numerous inventors that invented temperature regulating devices all the way back into the 1600s, uh, including Cornelius Druber, who was a uh, Dutchman that uh, developed a temperature regulating device for use with chicken incubators. The formal development for building controls happened in about 1883 from Professor Warren Johnson, uh, who was a teacher and inventor that grew weary of chasing down the maintenance staff or operations staff to have them open and close the dampers to his classroom with a chain uh, in order to regulate the temperature. There was, and the company that he founded, Johnson Electric Service Company, went on to become Johnson Controls today, obviously one of the biggest players in the controls market. And then uh, Mr. Butts was an uh, inventor in Minneapolis who developed the damper flapper invention, uh, often uh, basically to open and close the coal furnace flew to regulate the temperature in the building and his company went on to become Honeywell. So those were both in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And actually uh, June 15th, 1905, uh, Johnson Controls put pneumatic controls in both the house and the Senate building. So pneumatic control systems have been around since the Egyptians used pneumatics are powered by bellows to help raise and lower rocks, stones, piers, etc. Uh, as a motive force, but obviously the pressures were very low, seven, eight pounds of pressure is the most you can get out of a bellows. And obviously the they had no plastic tubing. They had none of the transport mechanisms for pressurized uh, air. But pneumatic controls really came into their own with the uh, adaptation of the piston and ring concept and allowing me mechanisms to produce high pressure air, which could then be distributed through small tubing to regulating thermostats, etc. Pneumatics evolved through the teens, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s to include very large scale control systems with oftentimes miles of interconnecting airline um, panels, gauges, switches, valves, controllers that many times uh, work together to provide very complex control strategies, PPI, PID, uh, advanced reset strategies. And, you know, as early when I was involved with uh, controls, even back into the 80s, the, my, my mentors would tell me there is not one thing that you can do with DDC controls that you can't do with pneumatics, and by and large, they were correct. Uh, 
the advances in DDC controls really moved the, the needle with advanced data collection, remote monitoring, and all of those things. My first exposure, as I mentioned in the last podcast, to actual control was through pneumatic. Uh, essentially prior to the receiver controller concept, which is essentially the pneumatic version of a PID loop. Uh, the motive force, uh, even through the advent of digital controls, was typically pressurized air. But we did not have available in a you know, widely applicable and cost-effective means electronic motive forces at the time. So pneumatic systems were the preference for motive force even going into early digital controls. But some of the first systems that I worked on, some of the first systems that I designed were pneumatic control systems. And at that time, uh, the fellow that you referenced, Mark, was absolutely correct. You could basically do everything pneumatically that you could do with DDC at the time through various things like receiver controllers, uh, restrictors, bleed valves, pilot positioners, all that stuff that so many of the early control people, that was their bread and butter. They actually resisted moving from pneumatic to electric because they were so comfortable with those systems, considered them much more reliable than electric at the time. It, it was tough to drag some folks away from the pneumatics into DDC at that time. Well, that, that's very true. And through the late 70s and even the early 80s, when DDC was uh, first entering the market, the first DDC systems were basically uh, not true distributed control as it is now, where you have standalone control panels either sitting on a flat network or a subnetwork that can use peer-to-peer communications or uh, otherwise stand alone. But most of the devices in the field were remote input output to a central processor. Now, I'm dating myself, but at the time, in the 1980s, uh, Johnson Controls sold a system called uh, JC80 uh, automation system, which included as its main CPU, a moving head disk that was a five megabyte disk with a total memory capacity on board of 8K of RAM. That was it. So think about that, basically um, how many more times powerful a uh, $1.99 calculator is that you can buy a dollar general to, as compared to that device, which was a central processing unit, and the I.O. devices were typically only performing SCADA functions of the pneumatics. So when we talk about SCADA, that's supervisory control and data acquisition. So there would be a variety of temperature sensors, flow sensors, relative humidity, et cetera. But <clears throat> the I.O. devices would be connected to uh, typically electro-pneumatic transducers that provided reset signals for the pneumatic control systems, or they would actuate an air switch valve to send the building control system from day into night or night into the day, 
or heating to cooling or vice versa. And the, the concern and trepidation of the tradespeople and even some of the application engineers uh, over the reliability, stability, et cetera, of uh, DDC versus pneumatics was well-founded. Uh, you know, those early machines with a moving head disc, they were about the size of a dishwasher. And when that disc was reading or writing, it also shook like a dishwasher, which, you know, to me, very cool back in the 80s. I mean, this thing that, uh, you know, is shaking like a, a out, of, out of balance dryer is doing building control. But at the same time, uh, the technicians, et cetera, that were, you know, whether they were from Honeywell or Johnson or anybody else, they were busy 24-7 because when those things went down, it was, uh, you know, all hands on deck moment. And, and think of the radical evolution that that represented when you went from those, you know, I'm sure Mark, you remember and Clayton, maybe you've had an opportunity to stumble across an old system somewhere, but the, the, you know, almost floor to ceiling and wall to wall control panels that had all the pneumatic gauges and the receiver controllers all uh, behind the scene, everything displayed as a, a pneumatic gauge with switches. These panels were enormous. Oh, absolutely. For, and the evolution of that going over to this, like, as you described, this dishwasher size device, that everything is behind the, the, the wall or, or the black box concept of nobody understood what was going on inside. It was just doing its thing it was hard for a lot of folks to go and make that evolutionary jump, even from the engineering standpoint. Uh, engineers were very reluctant in the beginning to trust uh, DDC controls. The few companies that were kind of the pioneers that really pushed it went through a lot of pain getting that developed, getting the market to accept it. That's, that's very true. Clayton, I don't know if... Uh you do you know what a slide projector is? I have no idea what a slide okay, projector so I'll, is. I'll give you a lesson on a slide projector. A slide projector is a device that takes a little about a inch and a half by inch and a half transparent film and you put it in a carousel and these slides are a way for you to project a picture that you took. You know, you could get slide film back in the 70s and 80s. That picture that you took and project it onto the wall. So there was actually a system uh, called a selectographic system that was marketed by one of the, the you know Fortune 500 companies that when you had a problem with your BMS in those days, it would select the slide in the carousel to project onto a movie screen, and that was your graphic. You know, obviously there was no data on it or anything <laughs> like that, but there would be a picture of, oh, here's your chiller, here's your air handler, here's a schematic of the system that uh, showed up on a, on a projection screen. That is crazy. It is crazy. I don't know. I, I kind of like logging onto my PC and pulling it up, hitting you know my link, and it's all there ready to go. <laughs> That's true. So DDC evolved, and, and by in, in many ways, uh, 
it was pushed by innovation of, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, the market was pretty well split up between Johnson Controls, Honeywell, and MCC Powers, which became Powers uh, or Powers Regulator Company, which became MCC Powers, which then uh, was bought by Siemens. But it was about 30% market share on a national basis for each one of those companies. But the innovators, uh, you know, the automated logics, the Andovers, uh, were the companies that drove automation performance. And I had the opportunity to sit in a sales meeting in 1981 and was told by the president of the Fortune 500 company in front of the entire sales force and most of the engineering staff that direct digital controls would never replace pneumatic controls. And by the middle of 1982, we were selling them. So, um, you know, that's, that's equivalent to the president of Kodak uh, saying to his shareholders, and he did, that um, digital photography will never replace film. So it's Jack Welch. Again, you'll hear this recurring theme when I get to speak in the podcast. Change before you have to. Innovate when you can at every opportunity. And through the 80s, uh, BMS was developed by the big three and market acceptance was uh, gained by the big three. And the issue, obviously, with all of those companies was protecting market share. And consequently, even though there were open protocols in the industrial world, like Modbus, Profibus, DH+, all of the BMS platforms evolved on proprietary platforms, both hardware and software. And each manufacturer developed proprietary communication protocols, which were very closed. And when I say closed, I mean closed. Uh, obviously, back in those days, there were very few network analytics tools, network analyzers that you could you know, sniff out a protocol and or reverse engineer protocol. And it was, uh, it was very tough to displace uh, a um, incumbent contractor once, you know, company A is installed in the first building on this campus and you want all the, the systems to talk together. Company B basically has no shot because specifications were written to extend company A to this building. And it made it very challenging from the customer perspective to get fair pricing and good performance. And from a competitive perspective, you know, to uh, uh, obtain market share. And, and backing up to, you know, a statement you made, Mark, that I think is interesting because both of us actually worked for one of those innovative companies, albeit at different times, those companies like Automated Logic, uh, like Andover Controls, and the company I'm referring to, which no longer exists, Voltec, that was local here in Western PA, but did work around the U.S., they were actually the ones pushing DDC. The big three were reluctant, to, so to speak, my experience was you saw more DDC going in from those smaller independents in the early to the mid 80s than you did 
coming from the big three. Well, that's correct. And even uh, Allerton, you know, who was over in Seattle at the time and really built some remarkable products at the time uh, of inception and, you know, when their, when their founders were there really, really uh, were market drivers as well. And you're right. The, the small companies saw that as the way to attack the enormous installed base that was pneumatic controls and relatively satisfied customers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's interesting because, you know, the business 101, once a customer had company X, basically you could afford as a, one of the sales guys for the big three to give away the first project, knowing that every addition and all the service for the next 10 years was coming to your company. Unfortunately, that came as a byproduct of elevated pricing on subsequent projects and subsequent service. So the commercial issues that drove open systems were uh, the, they were caused, they were self-inflicted obviously by the big companies, but they were driven by end users. And the end users felt a compelling need obviously to get competitive pricing and at the same time have a functional building management system that's what drove open protocols. So when system open protocols started, well, pricing came down on subsequent additions. Interestingly, because I worked in upstate New York at the time, I had the uh, opportunity to work with Mike Newman. Uh, His team, Mike Newman, uh, Steve Bushby, Lanny Joyce, all extremely talented guys, and they modeled their uh, translator program, which was basically took Honeywell information, Johnson information, uh, Andover information, and put it into a a deck uh, VAX and communicated between all three systems. And they modeled that uh, uh, using some of the early industrial open protocols, Modbus, that Modbus dates all the way back to 1979 uh, by developed by Modicon, Profibus, DH and DH plus from uh, Alan Bradley. All those open protocols were absolute requirements in the industrial world. And uh, the guys at Cornell uh, modeled their translation to a certain extent after what happened in the industrial world, knowing they had a campus uh, many millions of square feet and the need to monitor all the energy and facilities in all those buildings. So uh, in the uh, 1987, the first meeting of uh, ASHRAE EMCS 135 a message protocol group was established. And that was the true inception of BACnet as a first formalizing the idea of BACnet uh, through the working groups to prepare standards for actual development of BACnet. Might want to, for our younger audience members, Mark, 
actually explain what a deck vax is. <laughs> yeah, I could I could use that explanation oh, as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> remember, all right. So, and I I am fortunate enough that I do get to talk to young people quite often and explain to them that when I started in business, there were no cell phones, there was no faxes, there was, you know, most of the, there were no PCs. So most of the conveniences that we take so much for granted now are not available. So uh, before there was a Microsoft PC, there was a deck vax, which was, oh, it would be roughly three feet by three feet by three feet. And it was, uh, there was a VAX and there was a mini-VAX. So basically it was running on a mini-VAX, which was running a um, operating system, not Microsoft, and required some pretty good programming understanding and tools. And Cornell University obviously had a very uh, fertile environment for identification of those kinds of individuals and you know moving them into facilities. But that VAX was a computer that probably had about 20% oh, of what a modern cell phone has in terms of processing power. And uh, they used that as a communications translator for three different automation systems to be able to communicate with us with a single operator's workstation that had graphics and trending and things like that on it. Uh, and allowed them basically to monitor all of their separate BMS systems from a single location. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, DEC actually, uh, just to go a little further with what Mark was saying, is an acronym for Digital Equipment Corporation. The, uh, the VAX um, was basically an instruction set architecture for their computers. And as Mark described, one of these computers was dishwasher size, some of them refrigerator size, with the processing power that at that time seemed astronomical, but by today's standards, it, it wouldn't even pass for a handheld calculator. I mean, the, the deck computers were all the uh, Cape Canaveral uh, control systems computers that's what they used everything was deck at that time so it, it seems like the um the computing capabilities the the idea of um open protocols and in, in uh, integration and communication like that were were far ahead of the abilities the technology that was available well the horsepower that was available it seemed like a lot at the time but it really wasn't that much but, you know, I think much of the, a huge amount of credit goes to the team at Cornell. Obviously, uh, Mike Newman has passed away, but a very visionary guy who was single-minded purpose was to come up with a, a means and a method to have what he had in his mind was an open system a common set of instructions of communications and monitoring that could be applied or integrated at the um, component level for devices to be able to his, his thought process was not just be able to be monitored but also to interoperate 
and we're now here we are, you know, 30 years later, just getting to the point where we're, we're looking at a common programming language. BACnet has continued once it, they finally got it off the ground. It has continued to evolve, to develop and to integrate new functions as additional hardware became available. And as, um, you know, more processing power became available. Uh, remember at the time, uh, they were talking about BACnet. Internet was barely off the ground. So, uh, that opened up a whole new spectrum and arena for operation of BACnet devices. So was this um, that, you know, the thought of BACnet and open protocols, was that quite an uphill battle with the consumers, you know, to, to get them to buy in and switch over to something like that? Not with the consumers. Consumers welcomed it with open arms. The, the battle really uh, for acceptance was with the major manufacturers, the, you know, the big three, big four, uh, whatever existed at that time, resistant to that because they knew that would basically take the lock off of their customers. The smaller outfits at the time that were trying to gain market share, like Mark had mentioned earlier, Automated Logic, Andover, they embraced that, Allerton as well, because they saw that as an opportunity to get into customers that had been previously you know, locked up by one particular manufacturer, address the customer's desire for an open protocol so that they were no longer handcuffed. So you had the one side of the aisle where there's the smaller guys were embracing it, developing the product, uh, to implement it right out of the gate versus the big guys who were dragging their feet and didn't basically embrace BACnet till many years after the smaller outfits. That, that's, a, that's a good point, Rich. Uh, on our website, uh, I published a paper a few years ago uh, that was all about open systems and the Markov switching model. And the Markov switching model is a financial switching model that is used to define the probability of switching between binary choices based upon the cost to switch. So I went back and did some market research uh, into pre and post uh, open protocol BMS switching. So let's just say you installed a half a million dollar job in year zero and four years down the road, you're doubling the size of your building and you decide I would like to switch essentially you'd have to replace everything in your base building to switch to any new provider when you added on or doubled the size of your building. So that cost to switch drove all decisions. Now, once you put open protocols in place, we have a choice where the cost to switch goes down and what it shows is the only driver for switching is customer satisfaction. So as customers are more satisfied, that's the only variable that really gets manipulated uh, in terms of the cost of switching. If you have an incumbent, incumbent supplier who provides a very low customer satisfaction number, well, the incentive to switch goes up dramatically. If 
and the cost of switch is basically very low. So the, the economic function that Cornell envisioned, number one, to reduce the cost to integrate, add, make changes, obviously went down. And at the same time, the motivations for the contractor, for astute contractors, become we need to have very satisfied customers Otherwise, they'll be motivated to switch. So this is you know, a very um, positive thing for the automation world. It drives innovation. It drives uh, economies. And it drives uh, performance for the, for the customers. Yeah, that's huge. So um, something that comes to mind, and I've heard it from you, Mark, is you, know, you want to be on the cutting edge and not the bleeding edge of technology. Do you did did you see a lot of a lot of companies people on the side of the uh, bleeding edge with this, or was it more cutting oh, edge the blood. way it kind of entered the market? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Initially, that there was a lot of bleeding going on. I mean, there were some absolutely stellar crashes and burns um, early on. All right. So imagine now we have no internet. Several major companies sold remote monitoring of facilities. So to do that, you had to buy a dedicated POTS line, copper line, from the utility company. That would go to some location on a 24-7 basis uh, where a person monitored your system after hours. So we have, number one, we have the, with a, a baud rate of around 300 bits per second. So you weren't transmitting large files. You were basically looking at single points, one at a time. If there was an alarm, it was a contact closure. Very little diagnostics followed with it. There were no trends. There was no such thing. So a couple of big companies got into that where, okay, we'll monitor your building and make sure it doesn't freeze, it doesn't blah, 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 well, that was pure, purely as a function of cost and reliability. Uh, both were required significant investments. Now, they, they made you know, full 24-7 call centers with folks sitting around watching gigantic CRTs that you know, were either black and white or green and black uh, and proved themselves to be not only not useful, but not economically viable, or I guess both. Um, those are those are some of the big crashes and burns that I saw early on. Um, there were also product developments uh, that you know made it to market, but never really uh, that very short product life cycles uh, because they couldn't be extended because they you know weren't. Uh, couldn't keep up with changes in technology. They were built around specific processors that became obsolete and things like that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, listening in on the, the conversations and the evolution of it and knowing everything, I, just, I had to imagine that there was a lot of bleeding involved in the, the development and the evolution of the DDC controls and, and open uh, protocols. So, yeah, you went from a uh, you know, a life cycle back in the you know days before the open protocol system life cycles, 15, 20 years before your technology was so far behind. Once the open protocols came out, 
and everybody was rushing to develop product around those to be able to, you know, address the spec requirements, address the customer needs. The life cycle of those products became very short because the technology evolved so quickly. Right. And yeah, that's something we touched about on the last episode. True. So it, it also uh, was a serious learning curve for, you know, the people who were late to the party on the development side, you saw, you know, okay, now we have company A, B, or C of the big three and engineers began to adopt BACnet or years ago Lawnworks and you saw those specs start to come out, what was a common occurrence was for those companies to say, yes, we are BACnet compliant. Sure, you can be BACnet compliant. You can actually submit, I could submit a pencil to BTL and have it BTL listed, uh, even though it has no communications. All you do is check the box and say none. So it was a common occurrence for um, the, the big companies to say we are uh, BACnet compliant, but at the same time, they would uh, run BACnet as a secondary protocol and do all the major heavy lifting with proprietary protocols, which still meant that unless you had someone who really understood the networks, really understood controls, and could commission the system using a network analyzer, you end up with a system that's basically proprietary with a little bit of BACnet on it. But they call it a BACnet system, so you think, great, I'm, I'm buying a BACnet system, life is good. Then when you want to upgrade or add, you get a, a slap in the face when you realize it's not yeah, what many you expected. Many clients learned that the hard way. I can imagine, yeah, absolutely. Many, many customers thought they had purchased an open system, uh, reached a point where, as Mark said, the, the customer satisfaction quotient went down and now they were looking at, okay, I'm bringing somebody else in. And it was a rude awakening to find out that what they thought was an open system wasn't an open system and became extremely costly to bring in and integrate another system. So that, that kind of, I guess, leads us into our next point and just how open protocols actually led to the perception that BMS is more of a commodity and anyone can install. So obviously that's not true, but why was that perception? Why is that? Uh, perception, I guess. Well, it, it goes back, I think, to our uh, first podcast where we talked about here's the way um, engineering occurs now, and here's the way controls occur, and here's the way the whole thing occurs. I, I went on Amazon earlier this week. You can buy backnet controls on Amazon. You can buy uh, backnet power monitoring devices on Amazon. That's good, but without proper application training, without proper engineering training, without proper uh, network engineering and security, uh, it's like any other tool in the wrong hands is very dangerous. So in one way, uh, actually in, in the intended way, the founders of BACnet have achieved their goal where we really do have true interoperability, but at the same time, there has been and continues to be a gap of 
good system integrators that really understand uh, everything that's required to make a system truly interoperable and not just monitor uh, remote points from another BACnet system. It goes into even a lot of the, I'll say, quote, open systems out there. They still have the ability to basically lock those systems down. They can say, I am communicating completely 100% BACnet but I'm not exposing any of the backnet points. I, you know, I am locking down my tool license so that, you know, open source tools can't be used to change the database or, you know, potentially change uh, global sequences. So the perception of a completely open system requires a lot more than just saying we are backnet compliant. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, you could be buying a complete backnet system that you, you know, if you put a different controller in or do something differently, you need it. You need the supporting documentation and information and yeah. whatever to be able to get into it and talk to those points. I've been uh, to many customer sites over the years where, as we described before, the, the customer satisfaction quotient has gone down with their incumbent. They're looking at bringing somebody else in. They believe that they, when they, uh, you know, the incumbent installed the system, that they got a completely open system and that they should be able to, you know, upgrade their front end to any open front end that speaks the BACnet protocol. You go in, you put a sniffer on the network and there are no backnet points available on the network, even though the whole system is backnet. That's got to be very disappointing. So what, what is to, to kind of summarize this, this, uh, this podcast, what is the modern BMS system then? Well, I think the modern BMS system is basically fully distributed control which means that most of the devices, if not all the devices, um, control devices, will stand alone, operate autonomously, and uh, share share information to each other and to uh, a central repository for data and use in analytics. Um, that can be all the way up to and including uh, local web servers and at the same time, we have the opportunity now where we've taken networking to, to the sensor and operator level uh, so that you can uh, reduce wiring costs across the board. It, it's just been, uh, when you look back at it, it has very much mirrored uh, many of the things that have occurred in the industrial market on the process side. So, you know, the Rosemount Heart Network was one of the earliest uh, sensor networks, pressure or temperature or flow transmitter networks where all of our data came back directly from the sensors on a, on a single network. We can do the same thing now with uh, building automation system networks, uh, sensors for, for sensors and, and, and devices. So it, 
hard to say which comes first, but as hardware evolves, so does the performance of the BMS. And there's always an appetite, obviously, in the BMS system for more performance, more performance. But what we have now is very high-performing hardware and application software. And where we typically see the failures is in the application engineering programming, commissioning, and startup. It's not that the controls aren't very high end. It's that go back to the first podcast. There were no boots on the ground, no clipboards in the field, and the the system was engineered in a vacuum, installed without good communication or forethought, commissioned in an ad hoc manner, not systematically. And the result is poor performance uh, to me, it's no surprise. And to expound on uh, what Mark was saying there, and probably a good topic for a, a future podcast, the it, the advent of the Internet of Things and how that is permeating the building structure now and the BMS systems, the, the entire building automation systems, how that plays into the internet of things and the network structures that are going to carry these buildings, you know, into the next 20 years, that is radically different than what it was five years ago when field level networks were, you know, still serial networks communicating at, you know, maximum speeds uh, still in the kilobaud range instead of up into the megabaud range. So the modern BMS system, I, I see it rapidly migrating into this whole Internet of Things concept, connecting all of these disparate systems in a building now into, as we talked about early on, you know, one seamless uh, operating package that manages all those automation systems, allows the operator and user you know, a single pane of glass, a single user interface to be familiar with and use instead of all these multiple different systems that may have shared a few bits of information in the past that now can interconnect and interoperate to make a building function like we've all dreamed about. Yeah, so, uh, and and just for listeners, that, that kind of summarizes the evolution of the BMS and, and to cover it, we started off with the invention of the thermostat was a guy trying to keep his chickens cool. Was that warm. right, Mark? Warm, warm, <laughs> warm, keep his chickens warm. And we evolved to systems that have thousands of data points on them that all have um, inner communication ability. So uh, and this happened over what a course of uh, hundred, hundred, 200 years 1600s was the chicken farmer but the first thermostat was really uh 1885 or so right right okay yeah so a lot has happened very quickly yes with the evolution of the bms system and and more in the last 20 years than happened in the 80 years before it yeah that that evolution is an exponential curve and it's becoming so rapid these days with technological advancements being so exponential it uh, it drives change so quickly that if systems aren't 
basically built to be future proof when you put them in, you're going to get three to five years before they're obsolete. It goes back to an earlier question too. Um, you know, how is this commoditized uh, building automation? I think people think now you can stick a box in the wall. It's so inherently smart that it knows what to do, but this is not really how it works. It, it is fully dependent on the human beings that understand the system, program it, tune the control loops, uh, and, 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 you know, all of the, the human side of it that goes into engineering and installing good control systems, good performing control systems. Oh, and I think it goes into the the environment that the, the system is operating in um, and the equipment, the mechanical equipment that is under control too. For it to operate well, you can't just slap a box on a wall and tell this air handler to run, right? Because it depends on where it's installed, how, the, how it's mechanically configured. Uh, there's a lot of external factors that go into it. So with that being said, um, if you're listening to this, and you're operating a building, hopefully it's future-proof. And we'll be talking in the next episode about the basics of open system operation and functionality. So thank you very much.